Hi, and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work from the American University of Beirut. I'm your host, Rami Khouri. Every week we talk to a professor or researcher about the work that they're doing and what they're investigating, why they chose their topics, what they're discovering, and most of all, what does it mean for the rest of us? How does the work that a university, a research university like AUB do, how does that work uh, impact our world? Uh, I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Professor Elisha Mass. He's Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering, and he has worked for many years on robotic and bio-robotic uh, issues, um, kino- kinematics and mechanotronics and shape-controllable structures and all kinds of fascinating things, half of which I don't know what they mean, but he will explain to us. So, Elisha Mass, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rami, for having me. Uh, you bet. So, to explain to us what are all these different fields that are somehow, they come together in, in your work and uh, in the research you're doing. Tell us what are the critical issues that you're exploring and, and what you've come up with. Sure. So I uh, started as uh, an engineer here at AUB and then went and did grad school in Carnegie Mellon. And my first line of work was in designing uh, snake robots. And as the term, uh, as you imagine that term, it really is a robot that looks like a snake. So you have a slender body that has many articulations. You can bend it and twist it in, in many ways. And for snake robots, we have two main applications. Uh, with one of them is search and rescue, and the second one is a medical application. So you can imagine a snake uh, being able to uh, borrow through some really tight spaces. So that's where the search and rescue application uh, comes to ma- mind. Whereas if you are doing some minimally invasive surgery, that's where you want this articulated probe to go inside and inspect or do some uh, surgery inside a patient. To do, sorry, if you're talking about uh, a patient in medical work, you're talking about the robot doing surgery or just going in with a camera to see what's there? We started by just doing inspection, so just a camera to inspect. But uh, as you, if you do a quick search on Google, uh-huh. Many of the uh, robotic uh, applications now have um, fully actuated uh, snake-like structures with uh, devices at the tip that can do surgery and stapling and, and whatnot. Wow, amazing. So my line of work uh, was on the design of the joints of these snake robots. Okay, So how to make them mm-hmm. so uh, articulate enough, yet small enough to be useful. So that's when you say small, when you say small, are you talking of what the size of a cigarette or the size of a ruler? For the medical what? applications, yes, it's the size of your pinky is a, a good size uh, for medical applications because they have to go through the body to the body through uh, small ports. Right. But for since, uh, for search and rescue applications, uh, we can go bigger. So imagine the uh, diameter of your wrist, so about wow. the, the forty. Uh, millimeters or 50 millimeters in diameter. And you've developed this uh, snake uh, robot uh, technology? Do you keep developing it for new uses? Yes, so uh, in my grad school work, yes, I developed a joint and we got a patent because the design was novel. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, from a a good intuition in mechanical engineering to develop the the mechanisms Mm -hmm. for this joint. So you need to have 
a good understanding of mechanisms and 3D to develop these, these new concepts. And after that, uh, you want to make these things move. So you want mm -hmm. to make snakes to slither on the ground or even swim uh, if the wow. interaction between the body and the uh, environment is, is a viscous one or even glide or do something interesting while gliding. Wow. So that's my theoretical work. And that's where I got my PhD is understanding how to uh, make uh, these uh, snake-like robots do something interesting, locomote in an inter interesting way. And uh, you've, you've developed, uh, ultimately this led to developing what kind of uh, uh, products or machines or whatever, or robots? So the technical term there is called motion planning. Okay. Uh, and uh, which means if you have control over your body, right, how can you change your position orientation? So think about the falling cat. So you can hold the cat uh, with its leg, legs up. Yeah. And if you drop it, it landed on its feet. And it does so by just twisting and contorting its body. Wow. So that's the motion planning problem. But, but we did it for... Uh, so a more complicated robot, which is the snake-like robot. So that's theoretical work. Um, and you can think about uh, if you have a, a, an antenna in space, for example, that has many sections of its body that you can articulate, or if you uh, imagine a satellite with what they call reaction wheels. So the motion planning problem will tell you how to rotate these reaction wheels, how to change your shape uh, uh, the shape of your robot in order to do something purposeful like uh, align your satellite to or point your satellite at a certain location. Right. Okay. So that's the theoretical work that I did uh, and I'm still working on that with my PhD students. So the motion planning. Wow. And the motion planning is focused on the uh, robotic uh, instruments that you're developing. Right. Okay. So, and, and this can extend from snake robots and moving in different environments or simpler robots. So just a, a simple, uh, differential driven robot. So that's a robot mm -hmm. with two wheels. Mm -hmm. You still need to understand how the changes in the wheel positions will ultimately allow your robot to, let's say, uh, parallel park or move forward or rotate in, in space, in place, in its place. And these robots, however big or small or whatever they are, they are ultimately controlled by a human being somewhere. Yes, uh, but we try to make the life of the human being driving these things easier. So mm -hmm. especially if you have uh, many, many joints, like in a snake, and typically you can control the shape of this snake. So imagine you have a joystick with, uh, I don't know, uh, 12 knobs because mm -hmm. the, the snake has 12 degrees of freedom. Wow. So you can imagine trying to ask a human being to play with these 12 knobs and make the snake move forward. So we get in the middle between the human and the snake robot. And instead of giving him 12 knobs, we give him a, a joystick, move oh. forward. Wow. And the algorithms will translate that move forward to what should the shape of the snake uh, be, how it should change its shape in order to move forward. And are there constantly new applications that are being developed? People use these systems in new ways. For instance, can is there a snake robot that can go down and unplug a drain for me if my 
drain at home is plugged, I can send a snake down? I think we're still a bit far from that, uh, just because of the complexity mechanically and theoretically to mm -hmm. do such a task. Uh, we have seen great uh, progress on, on legged robots, but snakes inherently are much harder because they use the shape changes to locomote. And when you arrive some, uh, at some location, then you have to use the same body to do a certain task. So, and it's not, it's not uh, that simple. So the focus has been more now on the motion planning of these uh, snake robots. Mm -hmm. So in order to do purposeful motion, and to do it efficiently, let's say with the least amount of energy, with the least amount of time to get from point A to point B. So and these, my, are, yeah. these are, these are, um, these robots, these snake robots uh, in particular, um, are, they've reached the point now where they're relatively inexpensive, that companies can use them or research people can use them or medical people can use them, or are they still prohibitively expensive? They're still quite expensive. So back then, when I was an, uh, a student at Carnegie Mellon, a graduate student, the cost of one degree of freedom, so one motor and its electronics and its motion, is about $10,000. Wow. So pro that was in, uh, uh, I would say, what, uh, 99, 2000. Uh -huh. So now 20, year, 20 years ahead. Uh -huh. So I would multiply probably by five, so 50,000. Wow. And these robots are about uh, 12 or more degrees of freedom. So say 10 degrees freedom. So 50 times 10, you can do the math for me. So they're still yeah. pretty expensive, wow. um, uh, but they're pretty useful. And every maybe couple of years, you'll see a company uh, trying to pitch these robots as medical solutions or search and rescue solutions. So you see startups uh, doing snake robots but uh, very few survive really? just because of the sheer complexity. I mean, I've known of several uh, companies that, uh, that have started a snake robot-like medical device or medical uh, uh, tool, uh -huh. but then two or three years down the line, you'll see them that they have closed. And I, 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 I read, I read uh, that you developed uh, something that you call an elephant-like robot. Yeah, so that's when you attach a snake robot to a mobile base. Wow. So then you use the mobile base to get somewhere, uh, and then you use the snake robot to look and peek around. So that's more for a search and rescue uh, application. And these are being used in uh, actual search and rescue missions? Yes, uh, these and snake robots. But remember, in search and rescue, we always put a tether on these robots because the tether is not only to get signals and, and give power to the robot. Uh, the tether is always useful when the robot, something bad happens to the robot and it turns off, you can always pull it back. They're very expensive, <laughs> wanna keep them. Yeah, amazing. And, and use them, yeah. So what, I, what yeah. Go, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, I think one of the first usages of uh, snake robots in a disaster area was done by my advisor in uh, New Mexico when there was an earthquake they oh, sent yeah. a, a, a robot uh, down one, one of the sort of collapsed buildings. Wow. So what are you and your colleagues and your students, what are you now working on the latest research that you're doing in this field at AUB? Okay, so in this field, I, I told you it's, it's mostly motion planning and those 
are just to develop algorithms, optimal algorithms to do the motion planning. Mm -hmm. But recently with my colleagues, I've been collaborating quite a bit with the medical field. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do several things. Uh, I work with the orthodontic uh, department here at the AUB in mm -hmm. the medical center. And over there, uh, they want to measure uh, the tooth movement uh, throughout an orthodontic operation. And to do that, um, we developed uh, sort of an application that uses machine learning to look at images and scans of, of a patient uh, through time. And then we can sort of segment uh, each tooth individually and see how it moved through time. Wow. Now, this is challenging because you don't have any nice and stable references uh, to measure things with respect to. So if you look at your upper palate, you have a yeah. gingiva, which is your gum, soft tissue, and then each person has a different shaped uh, teeth. Yes. So that makes the problem much more challenging, but we have been progressing on that. And you're trying to measure how much an individual or several teeth actually move during an operation. Right, during a, a whole orthodontic procedure. So you, if you put uh, braces on someone, on a person, yeah. you always have to correct the tension on these braces in order to arrive at the final uh, uh, nice pearly smile. So, wow. <laughs> so we, we analyze and hopefully uh, we can give feedback to the uh, dentist that maybe the student has moved too much, uh, ease down on the tension on the braces for that location. So when I help them uh, sort of achieve a, a nice pearly smile uh, in the least amount of time and at least uh, in the least painful way for the patient. Wow! Because and you're doing this through. Yeah. So you're, do, Sorry, you're doing this through scanning. You said. Yes. So. Uh, Scan right images now, of the of the mouth. Yes. So right now, when you go to a dentist, there is no more uh, sort of impressions where they used to pour some sort of uh, uh, liquid. You put it in your mouth, and it, it solidifies. So right now, mm -hmm. what dentists do? They have a very small scanner that looks like a, almost like a, a fat pen. And it takes images of your uh, of your palate, and the product of that scan is a three D mesh uh, of your inside of the of the palate. So it's a digital impression of your teeth. Wow! Amazing. How are you? In which directions are do you see this technology moving? Do you have already plans for the next uh, field of study that you're going to work on, or applications you're going to try to explore? Yeah, for this particular one, I mean, we're hoping that the scanning companies will buy our application or we can license the algorithms for them because it makes the life of, of uh, dentists much easier uh, in, when you sort of inform them about the progress of the uh, orthodontic uh, operation. So that's one line of work. Um, uh, in the medical field, uh, there's another line of work which uh, has to do with... Uh, developing a new medical uh, forceps. So if you imagine uh, a kid has swallowed a peanut, it went down the wrong hole, uh -huh. and it's stuck in its air in his uh, her airways. Uh -huh. So you have to be rushed to the hospital, and they have these forceps that they try to uh, grasp the, the peanut and pull it out. Right. But these forceps, they close like a scissors, and sometimes because they're closing like a scissors, uh, they actually lodged the, or pushed the peanut even further down the throat. Right. 
and we develop a new forceps that doesn't close like a scissors, but it closes with the jaws, are, they stay parallel. So there's no pushing action when you try to grab something. Wow. This is with another colleague at the medical center, and it was a novel design for which we also got a patent. And it's now being used? It's now, we're now looking for a, <laughs> a partner, a medical device company partner that will adopt the design and hopefully it'll be used soon. So maybe this podcast will, will expose us to some uh, medical companies or medical ah. device companies. <laughs> Inshallah. Uh, but do you have to do a lot of testing before you can start manufacturing? Yes, so now we have the patent and we have the concept and the prototype, but uh, definitely it's a long process before this device can be used in real life. So there's lots of uh, accreditation and lots of uh, hoops that you have to jump through and uh, verifications and, you know, the uh to be uh, validated before usage mm -hmm. and the patent when you when you de develop a, a new uh, mechanism or concept uh, yeah. you get a patent and who who owns the patent you personally or the university or a, so the university, university owns the patent of course your name is on it as an inventor and uh, once it's uh, aub wants to license this so the proceedings go to eub they could offer the inventor something, but uh, ultimately, because the work was done in the university, the university owns the patent. And uh, if this brings in revenues and these go back, and ideally back into more research and scholarships yes. for your students and more yes. people to work with you. Yes, correct. Wow. Um, what's, the, uh, what's the single biggest priority that you can identify if you look around your lab and your work right now and what is the one thing that you go home and you think about and you want to try to resolve is there an outstanding challenge that you're grappling with <laughs> in lebanon <laughs> well you know, in lebanon you need more than technology to solve the challenges yes. in lebanon but in your <laughs> field <laughs> well okay so at the university we have three things that we have to do typically so we have teaching we have service and research. Mm -hmm. So teaching is teaching, and it's always sort of a, an enjoyable time for us because we're, we would not be professors if we don't like to teach. Of course. So that's probably, I would say, 20 to 30% of your time. Service is sort of the grant work where you give back to your department, to your faculty, right. and to your uh, institution. It's, uh, I mean, it, it has to be done, and sometimes it yeah. can be stressful, sometimes it's, it's enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Uh, what takes most of our time is the research. So research, you have to uh, advise students and graduate students. And that's one thing that keeps me up because you cannot graduate a student, especially a PhD student, unless uh, they become better than you in, in, in their uh, area of focus. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yes, definitely. I mean, uh, we're talking about PhD students. So they have to be the experts in that field globally, not only at, at the UB. Because wow. our uh, committees are uh, must have external uh, examiners. So yes, uh, we cannot graduate a PhD unless they're published in well-known uh, venues, and journals, and uh, their work has to stand on their own and has to be an improvement on what's out there. So it's a bittersweet moment when you see your PhD graduating. Yes, and of course. Big challenge. And, but it is a proud moment for an advisor to see his PhD student uh, graduating. Of course. Um, and the, the PhD 
experience at the UB is relatively new. It started about 15 years ago or something, didn't it? 15, 20 years ago? Probably almost 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and you have some PhD students in your department. Yes, I graduated, I graduated already one PhD student, and now uh, my second student is uh, close to graduating too. Oh, Mabrouk. Uh, so Thank what's you. your, uh, so if the Board of Trustees calls you in uh, and says, uh, hey, Professor Shemes, should we do, should we spend more money on PhD students? Because, of course, we have to, the university pays everything for them and gives them a, a stipend. And so it costs money to run a PhD student operation. And of course, they pay back by teaching and, and doing research. But what would you tell the Board of Trustees if they tell you, should we do more PhD students? It's, uh, it doesn't have a straight answer because, I mean, uh, you have to place these PhD students once they graduate. So you don't want to, fl to flood the market here in Lebanon with mm. PhD students that are sitting idle and not doing anything. Right. And definitely you don't want to hire them back at EUB at yes. least uh, as soon as they graduate. Right. So uh, definitely, I mean, uh, graduating PhDs and if they can find opportunities and go abroad and, and start working, then definitely we need to produce more PhDs, but we can. I mean, we have to be careful with the uh, numbers of PhDs that we uh, produce. Right, and and so, we've we've almost run out of time. One one last question. You talked about the um, collaboration with the medical school and and probably other people. Um, mm -hmm. The strength of a university like AUB is the interdisciplinary work that's being done, as far as I can see, in my view. Um, do you see this as the wave of the future, that more and more work will be done with several faculties collaborating together? Yes, definitely. I think, I mean, that's, at least in my case, has been very helpful uh, to interact with colleagues from completely different disciplines and try to solve a common uh, challenge or a common problem because every person on that table will bring something new, even though sometimes they speak different languages. Right. But once you go down to the core of the problem and work on it, something nice will come out almost always. Wow, amazing. Well, we've run out of time. Um, Professor Alicia Mass from the uh, Mechanical Engineering Department, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rami. Okay, good luck uh, with your work, and thank you to our audience for listening. This is... Uh, Rami Khoury, your host, Professors at Work is our podcast, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another insight into what our amazing researchers are doing at AUB. Bye for now. Bye-bye.